0: Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. FIS is fully functional. Every broker, every office, and every team is ready to help you with pricing, research, and operational assistance. Hello and welcome again to Castaway, the FIS podcast. Uh, Unfortunately, no special guests this week, but I do bring uh, our regular guests, uh, Alex, our MD of Strategy, Kerry all the way from home again, our Head of Business Development, and all the way from Singapore, uh, Tom, our Director of Asia. Hello, guys. Hi, Chris. Hello, everyone. Good morning. So let's dive in in, uh, on the macro. We do seem to be having a little bit more of a positive picture around the world. Alex, I don't know if you want to
1: pick up on this first. We're seeing some good news from New Zealand. Yeah, it was quite interesting. We were talking about uh, earlier what measured leadership has resulted in and how, you know, okay, agreed, they do have very different borders to the rest of the world and their physical location has made a difference. But the temperament and the leadership shown has resulted in, you know, allowing them to lift their lockdown and potentially resurrecting and, and saving their economy that's probably not uh, a model that can be replicated across many countries due to New Zealand being fairly special but we are seeing sort of uplifting news emerge and hopefully that continues to spread as, as, as things begin to appear more positive.
0: And uh, Tom how are things seeming in a kind of more eastern markets in, and the situation in Singapore for you? Things looking more uh- positive?
2: Um, Singapore itself? uh, No, absolutely not. The opposite, unfortunately. Um, We have got one of these feared second waves, um, albeit in a very contained community amongst the sort of migrant worker communities who are all living in dorms um, rather than it being in the sort of general public uh, population. So it is sort of self-contained to some degree in a similar way to the sort of outbreaks that we saw earlier on on the cruise ships. Um, but our numbers in Singapore are around the 15, 16,000 mark, I believe, uh, as of today. Uh, whereas a week, 10 days ago, we were less than a thousand. So we've really gone from being held up as a model of how to do things to sort of not really sure where we stand uh, any longer. But the rest of Southeast Asia and, and China seems to be doing uh, much better career. I think um, it's close to being able to say similar things as New Zealand at the moment. They're down to a very low double digit, if not single digit daily uh, daily new cases. China, obviously, we talked about last week, the recovery seems to be, relatively underway now there. There's some more positive news coming out. There, There is some imported cases across the Russian border in, and in um, Guangzhou, uh, we're told. But uh, broadly speaking, they, they seem to be, if you believe the, the figures coming out of China, they seem to be recovering quite well. So broadly speaking, Asia seems to be uh, starting to sort of get back to where it needs to be, uh, with the, with the notable exception of Singapore at the moment.
0: we're seeing the same i guess in europe in some of the hardest hit areas italy now are looking to relax measures we've seen those who've dealt best with the situation countries like finland or or germany uh, are really starting to look at these processes of getting us out of this lockdown and trying to avoid that second wave uh kerry to bring you in on this i know this is a bit of a hot potato question. But how do we see that, How do you think we're going to get out of this situation? Is it going to be a long drawn out process? Or are we seeing more of a, a quick bounce back in, in, in the situation economically and getting back to normality?
3: That is a hot potato question, and uh, if I had the answer to that, I would be a very wealthy man. Having said that, uh, my personal view is very much it's going to be a drawn-out process. I think for the larger economies in particular, as much as I uh, value the good news that's coming in from a lot of the smaller countries right now and a lot of the countries that are past the peak, you've got to look only to Germany to see that uh, as soon as they started loosening their restrictions their r rate or the rate of infection has climbed right back above one again Uh, and uh, they are already saying that they may have to put a pause on further loosening so any idea that by the early summer we're going to be going to the pubs again put it this way is, is probably a little bit misguided at this point i think uh i think we're looking at a new normal for quite a few months ahead in my eyes, the most positive development by far has been the Oxford research team uh, edging closer to a successful vaccine, uh, one that has at least worked in monkeys. So fingers crossed that comes through.
2: On on that vaccine, I was reading in The Economist this morning, uh, there's a couple of um, vaccine producers in India that have sort of taken a punt for the good of humanity on this and have agreed to ramp up production on it before it's proven to actually work in humans. So they, they've they started, they are going through the approval process in India at the moment, and they are taking a view that they will be able to have 50, 40 to 50 million vaccines available by September um, at purely at, at their cost in the hope that it uh, it does work. So fingers crossed,
0: Fingers crossed, indeed. Moving sideways across to commodity specific markets, uh, Tom. Let's stick with you and talk about the iron ore and steel market. Um, to use the same expression, we're we are moving sideways on rates here, aren't we?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean that sums it up perfectly. We've uh, sort of we we've, we've been very range bound the last uh, five to seven days. Um, the market came off a little bit, just over a dollar since we spoke last week, and the sort of Story We've been talking about of conflicting signals from the demand side, from the supply side, that sort of continues. Port stocks have decreased um, to 150 million tonnes in April, which is the lowest level since last July. Um, But we've also seen steel inventories moving faster. Um, But um, there's also stories of um, uh, cargoes destined for countries outside of China being diverted to China. So it's unlikely that there'll be a shortage anytime soon in China. Um, so this sort of, you've got this neutral to bearish sentiment, but there's there's a few sort of shafts of hope that are keeping that market propped up. Uh, above where we've sort of said we would expect it to be given what we've sort of seen with every other commodity across the complex at the moment. So, yeah, a story of continuation from where we were last week. Uh, no real strong signals one way or the other at the moment as to where the market should should be going.
0: Uh, and Kerry, um, I've got some notes which you wrote and one bit has something in capitals. Construction drives everything. I don't know if you want to <laughs> it'd be, it'd elaborate be. on that point a bit more.
3: I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but you know, I, I do think people tend to forget uh, in all the headlines about infrastructure investment and in all the headlines about where you know what will foreign demand be for Chinese steel. Domestic Chinese construction, residential construction, is the vastly principal driver of steel demand in China. That rebar usage in domestic residential construction drives something like 80% of all consumption. So I think we need to be watching very, very carefully what happens in that market. Do we think, for example, the Chinese are going to go on a little bit of a, a spending spree to reward themselves for a lockdown for a few months? I know a lot of people talk about that. Uh, what, what are we going to do when lockdown ends? Um, is buying a house one of them? And do we think that would uh, that would promote the construction market uh uh, in China, a construction boom later in the year.
0: I know there were some stories of some high-end stores. Uh, now that they've opened and the lockdowns uh, ceased, they're having record amount of sales uh, on things. So maybe that is a sign of things to come for the future. But let's switch back to a, a less positive view. Uh, and Kerry, can we stick with you and talking about the, the dry freight? So we're seeing yeah. take rates tumble here.
3: Yeah, they've come off quite aggressively. I mean, the May contract on the Capes was down nearly $1,000 just yesterday alone. Uh, The Baltic Cape 5TC average has fallen $1,400 or so since we last spoke. The problem with the Capes, and this is something we touched on last week, and the problem across dry freight as a whole, is that the plunging oil price has done two things very quickly. It's made the fleet a lot more efficient, by allowing owners to suddenly s- uh, sail at normal speeds rather than slow steaming to conserve fuel. And it's made the fleet a lot more profitable by lowering those costs for the owners, uh, especially on the voyage rates, um, which has allowed some of those ships that were in soft layup, uh, just parked and with anchors dropped, not going anywhere when the market was very poor, to re enter the fleet. And that has really put a ceiling on the market right now and driven it down fairly aggressively. What you have right now is Brazil cargo on iron ore not materializing quite to the level perhaps people had expected or hoped, and a lot of ballasters on the capes now steaming at, at relatively normal speeds over towards Brazil, meaning there's too many ships headed there. So whether or not the Pacific market is busy enough to offset that in the coming week, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, the Panamax is suffering much the same fate right now, being pushed down by those capes as well, with the Atlantic in particular not particularly positive, and uh, and the Pacific, the only market that is uh, stable enough to try and hold things where they are. Now, the one thing that is a ray of hope here is an interesting announcement from Vale yesterday that they will actually speed up the scrapping of their older very large ore carrier vessels. These were cons- these were converted oil tankers uh, that they used to carry large amounts of iron ore across the Atlantic, mainly into Europe and also out to China. And uh, if they were to scrap all of the vessels that they're talking about here, uh, and that would be about 25 of these very large ore carriers, then that would account for 3% of the global cape size fleet in terms of tonnage. And that would actually mean that Cape Size net fleet growth this year is negative in terms of tonnage. Uh, slight ray of hope there that could add a little bit of impetus to the back end of the year uh, if cargo starts to uh, pick up again. But uh, but at the moment, that's probably it for now.
0: Yeah, I guess it's something which you could have a situation coming to the end of the year if the scrappage comes about, as you as you explained, coupled with very low fuel oil prices, you could have a situation where these could really rebound quite quickly then.
3: Exactly. Exactly. I think you could actually, Um, especially if we see industrial rebounds in Europe, uh, especially, you know, Tom mentioned some of those cargoes at the moment that were bound for Europe from Brazil, for example, are being diverted to China at the moment uh, with the German steel mills largely quiet. And uh, so if we were to see that situation change, all of a sudden, I could see a situation in Q4 where things start looking uh, quite a bit more positive. Yeah, because because uh, that's something that
0: we've seen in terms of the the economic outlook. Um, Alex, to to bring you in again on this, we've been seeing analysis of what well, quite disastrous Q1, Q2 GDP figures, which have you know hugely negative. This is uh, some people put worse economic situation than before. You know, the Second World War, but this could have a real sharp rejection back off that low and we could see some
1: recovery quite quickly of a lot of economic activity is that what you're seeing in the stuff that you're reading as well or it to to an extent yes but i think a degree of caution has to be exercised in in, in what we're reading we've got to be aware that people do need to publish uh, column inches just to get themselves you know out there but it does feel hopeful There does feel like there's a degree of you know bounce back in, in across the you know, not just across financial markets, but in people's perception of how we're we're going to pan out. The doomsday scenario is less in in people's focus and less in their conversation. And more and more, uh, even anecdotally, the conversation seems to be on when we're going to recover, not if we're going to recover. So Nostradamus was
0: only eight years off in his predictions. It wasn't 2012, it was 2020. But uh, moving back to a market which has definitely come off support was definitely in intensive care last week, the oil market with those negative prices, which drew so many headlines. Um, we did have a recovery back up on rates. And if you look at Brent again, we we did drop back below the $20 mark for the front month future, but it's still not looking particularly great on there. And one of the things that has been written a lot about recently has been storage. And those have been huge kind of builds in US stockpiles. Uh, the week before we had 15 million barrel build, but it seems that we're getting to a stage now where it might not be as bad as they were predicting. So the API has predicted this week that it's only going to be a 10 million build. So all those predictions of uh, around about 70% of storage is full. If we keep going on the way that we're going, we're going to hit those buffers. And then you could have a situation again where those negative prices come in because you know, you, you just have so much of it, you can't put it anywhere else. It may have been a little bit presumptive, and it seems that as we've been discussing with other markets, there is a little bit more positive than we thought. I don't know if anyone else has kind of been seeing the same kind of thing in the oil markets—a little bit of positivity again. But I mean,
2: I mean, I think great. that is very much the storage tank half full uh, <laughs> way to look at it. <laughs> um, the, 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 the yes, that maybe that the rate that the uh, the storage facilities are filling up may have slowed a little bit but the reality is from a demand perspective these facilities are full these facilities are normally used to control price um, in in situations of demand shock essentially but we've never been in a situation where you've got no storage facility and a demand shock of, of this extent they may be filling up slower but I don't think anyone's saying that we're not going to reach capacity. Uh, it just might happen a little bit slower than was being anticipated at the roll last month. I think as well the fact that in the last couple of days, U.S. oil futures, the world's biggest ETF that trades the WTI, uh, allows retail investors to to access that that price, has. Announced that it will sell, or is, has started selling, all of its June futures contracts, um, which is more than twenty percent of the fund, I believe, over the over over the coming days. Um, that has sort of sparked the WTI to drop again. So we're, that's trading around the June contract is trading around the ten dollar mark at the moment, and a lot of people are suggesting that that. We will be in a similar situation come the roll uh, on the June contract as we were on the May contract and you know, are fully anticipating that going negative. And the contango in the market at the moment is so, so steep um, as people are sort of looking um, looking forward uh, as to what they'll do with, do with this glut uh, later in the year. But that just puts further pressure on the front, on the spot month. Um, so, yes, I think you, you can grab onto that. Sliver of light that you're talking about, Chris. But I, but unfortunately, I take a slightly more pessimistic view of things. I I think there is an argument to say that the oil market, as we know it, is sort of broken, and it's going to be a a, st- a long, 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 long um, recovery uh, back to sort of what what we know of the oil market, the demand levels we've seen at the end of 2019.
0: Doom and gloom, Tom. There I'm sorry.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> no. Obviously, to pick up on that and not good news, I mean, a lot of people who aren't involved in the oil market or who are consumers will look at this as a good thing. But the oil price has such a huge impact on a lot of markets sort of those exchange traded funds, uh, things like pensions. Uh, all they're yeah. looking about is going, oh, my, my price at the petrol pump isn't going down. And they're looking at negative prices and I've had many questions of what about this oil product? Is that going to go negative? What about this other product? Are they going to pay us to take petrol off them at the forecourt? You know, it is not going to be that kind of situation and it's not going to have as beneficial impact as a lot of people say. And I was reading one thing about the FT reporting about that if oil price averages $38 for the next two years, the major American and European oil companies will burn through around about $175 billion. That's a huge black hole to fill. I mean, pensions have a big enough black hole as it is, but this is, I think I've caught... The pessimism from you now, Tom.
3: <laughs> exactly. I was going to say it's spreading around the well, table. I, I,
2: I think oil is a barometer for the world economy. The economy is oil. Um, the energy, energy density that oil creates can't be replaced. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about recovery, we are going to need oil to recover. Uh, and to that point you just made, Chris, about the, the oil majors in Europe and the US burning through that much cash, there is a strong argument now that. From a national security basis, the U.S. will look at starting to nationalize some of its oil producers if it gets bad enough, um, because there is no other form of energy to replace oil in a timely enough fashion to drive this recovery uh, that we're all talking about and hopeful of. Um, and you know, if it if it stays down at these levels or lower, it is not a sustainable business. But the economy is run on, on oil. And yes, there's the climate change argument and, and whatever, but in terms of energy density and energy stability, we're not a situation where anything can readily replace oil. So uh, it's it, it will be, yes, these low rates will hopefully help drive the recovery. But if you know, looking at the results from BP yesterday, uh, it, if things continue, there, there is a strong argument that that oil companies will start being nationalized again. And we go back yeah. to, to pre pre British Britannian
0: days, and, uh, heaven, uh, forbid. <laughs> heaven forbid! Heaven forbid a Republican U.S. government nationalising that's, that's, that's things of Bernie uh, oh, Sanders the like communist, that. isn't it?
1: So, <laughs> Alex
0: Alex wanted to come in here.
1: Just, uh, so that leads to quite an interesting point, and maybe one for development on a further podcast. But then, does that sort of state intervention lead to social unrest in the United States? Then, how does that have an effect on the energy complex as a whole and, and currencies?
2: Yeah, very good point, Alex.
1: Um, um, it's quite significant, right? Yeah, maybe
2: we we'll want to delve into next week when we have a bit more time.
1: Brilliant. Yeah,
0: I mean, an interesting thing, just to stay on, on oil while we have a, a few minutes here, the tanker rates, we saw those drift up massively or spike up massively on the news of a lot of uh, floating storage. But those rates have come back a bit, so I think that is demonstrating that maybe there are the f- first signs that it's not quite as bad as they thought it was because these rates were flying up and now we've lost you know half their value on some of them uh, of some of the routes so i think i mean that, the- that's on the financial revisit. side it,
2: Chris. Is a lot of that not profit taking from people that have sort of ridden the wave uh and...
0: yeah or, or correction of people who thought that this was going a lot higher because they thought it was going to be uh, you know, a situation as bad as 2014 where floating storage really was quite the thing to use. Uh, and rates really spiked on that level. But I think it's something that perhaps we should look again at next week and compare and see what's happened going forward. Yeah. Especially as we see later today the EIA confirm what those US stock levels actually are rather than a prediction by the API. That would be interesting to see. And we can see that trend of what's happening really on the ground of what the the, the energy department is really saying what those levels are. But um Kerry, let's fly on through to air freight. What are we seeing on air freight rates at the moment?
3: Well, the bulk of the air freight capacity is booked out now until mid-June, and we are expecting to see essentially a big whiplash in this market. Uh, I think we're going to see some very heavy moves shortly. We have the passenger airlines just beginning to look at returning a bit of service in June. Uh, And that's around the same time as, fingers crossed, we hopefully expect that the PPE shipments that have been driving a lot of the uh, rise in air freight rates, particularly ex-China, are going to slow down as as the United States and Europe hopefully need less and less of those urgent PPE shipments. And so, you know, you're looking at a situation that could have a very detrimental effect on the rates uh, in June. Moving forward, though, you know, as the economies recover around the world, will there be enough capacity? It does not look like any passenger airline will be running at anywhere near full capacity uh, for some time now. We're seeing Lufthansa and Air France KLM both receive huge bailouts this week. and uh, a lot of airlines looking to cut staff, like British Airways, talking about laying off up to 30% of their staff. So will there be enough capacity to serve these markets? We could easily see a bit of a roller coaster ride over the next few months on air freight, and that is driving a lot of inquiry into us, actually, at the moment on uh, air freight forward agreements and how to hedge on this market. Uh, So anyone who's interested, do please contact us to ask.
0: So we're, we're starting, it may become a regular feature if the, the audience demands it. A random market of the week. So we have been going around finding some markets which we knew nothing about and that we thought were interesting, strange, uh, something which people wouldn't have heard about. And this week we are talking about cheese futures.
1: It's one of those legendary markets that you hear oh, about. Like, someone would do it. <laughs> I knew someone would do it. How, how mature is this market, Chris?
0: <laughs> you mean been, been stocking these up, ready to go. Uh, dear me. But, uh, to take another bite out of the cheddar, we will move on. Um, <laughs> but these rates are, are an interesting one. Um, I don't know whether there are certain terms in this market, such as the milk butter spread. Um <laughs> but we perhaps there's certain terms of if you're bid on instead of saying you're bid on you you're churning or whatever it turns but it's it's an interesting market in terms of what it is so i was reading an article about the cme launching uh, a new contract to uh alongside their existing cheese, cheese contracts um and this one uh, typically sold in around 40 pound blocks which is about the size of a suitcase for those who can't visualize 40 pounds uh, and have moved on to uh, normal ways of uh, measuring things, such as kilograms, uh, or a 500-pound barrel. So there are two types of cheese. Uh, there's block and there's barrel. Food manufacturers and restaurants usually use block, uh, while the barrel cheese has higher level preservatives and is more commonly used in powders and processed foods. So I don't know if anyone has any questions to fire me about this market and the limited knowledge I have on it.
2: What's no, cheese, cheese volatility
0: done in the last few weeks, probably? Well, I have no idea about cheese volatility in the last few weeks. <laughs> I can tell you that the May contract settled at $1.22 per pound. And it is in similar to the oil market in Contango.
3: The cheese market is in Contango. The cheese is market I'm, I'm is right? in uh, Contango. Uh, i would have thought it was dated given the uh the relatively high demand for uh comfort food shall we say while everyone's locked yeah. down at home yeah. so uh that is very interesting to me
0: i can can tell you that spot is higher than uh, the front future so we do have a, a a much higher spot rate so maybe people are consuming more cheddar at home than they would usually do uh, but it is in contango up to around about november 21 november 2021 we have a contango <laughs> cheese market
1: is there is there any truth to the rumour that it was actually big cheese in Washington that started the catchphrase, make America great again? Oh, wow. Well, I think we've just lost <laughs> another 50, 50 <laughs> yeah. listeners.
3: Yeah, that, that that's enough to turn anyone <laughs> off of this. <laughs> yeah, you, you can, can edit, edit that one out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. We have,
2: uh, yeah, so if anyone <laughs> wants to
0: find out some more about cheese futures and wants to see the correlation to oil, freight markets, other things, it may be an interesting spread to look at, but uh, CME do have these cash settled cheese futures, uh, which you can trade. Uh, the cash settled bonds are a block cheese market, uh, and as we said, are traded in dollars per pound, and currently quite severely contango. But there we are for the random market of the week. I'm sure someone else will bring us a, another strange market next week, hopefully. And we can explore the weirdness that is futures market to anyone who has never been involved in it. Uh, anything else from anybody before we wrap up this week's podcast? Not from me. No. That's
3: all Not from for me. me
0: Thank you. All right. Thank you very much uh, for joining me again, guys. And to everyone out there listening, I hope this was informative and hope you're listening again next
3: week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.